0: Welcome to BC's Corner, episode 17. I want to start today with some gratitude. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing and for sharing. There is a lot of work that goes into each episode, and you all affirm that work week after week, even when no new episode is released. So I want to say that I value you and thank you for joining the conversation. I went back and forth for quite a bit on what to say about today's guest, what to say about today's topic, what is today's topic. (laughs) And as I re-listened to our discussion, I began to think about the myriad of issues that we confront, that we acknowledge, or even ignore. On a personal level, there are the battles of identity, belonging mental and financial comfort, stability, all in pursuit of a personal preferred future. Outside of ourselves on a communal level, there are so many. There's gun violence, homophobia, racism, xenophobia, human trafficking, political corruption, corporate greed, really a failure to listen. Today's guest is someone who has allowed their personal battles to fuel their community impact. As a former White House staff member under the Obama administration, Derek Fleming Jr. now serves as the Managing Director of Strategic Engagement for Chicago Scholars. Derek oversees corporate, college, community, and civic partnerships and engagement, in addition to managing internal strategic initiatives. Derek is also the founder and senior consultant of TGEL Enterprises, which is a project management and coaching consultancy where 10% of all revenue earned goes back into local Chicago communities. While also serving in various national, local, community, and education-based leadership capacities, this guy is the real deal. He has been featured in Forbes and a myriad of other media platforms, but today he makes his debut in BC's Corner. In this episode, we simply explore Derek and through an understanding of his unique human experience, I hope you grasp his level of intentional joy and optimism that comes from but also fuels his willingness to serve. Many people spend their life, build their careers on pointing out the issues and the problems that we face today, but we get to hear from someone who generously uses his energy to create solutions that make a material impact. Let's get started with Derek Fleming, Jr. In preparation for this conversation, uh, you sent me over your resume. And man, did I read that resume. And I also had the privilege of looking you up and learning more about you and your work. And the first thing I'm noticing is that, one, you are a scholar obtaining your bachelor's from Alabama State University, your master's from Spurtis Institute of Jewish Studies, uh, and then also to have fellowships and certificates and affiliations associated with the Chicago Booth School of Business, the University of Florida, a crucial learning based here in Chicago. You've also, when you look into your work, you've dedicated your professional life to making a material difference in the local Chicago community, but also on a national and even global scale as a nonprofit development expert, using your expertise to manage small budgets with very big missions, but then also to strategize and maximize the work that organizations are able to do in local communities and really to adjust the vision to really meet the people where they are. A strong dedication you have to Black youth and others from underprivileged experiences and backgrounds so that they can pursue a higher education, so that they could envision themselves in a different life. You've also worked in the Obama White House, something that you really... that That's the first thing on the resume, but you've worked in the Obama White House, and now you have a leading role as managing director of strategic engagement with the Chicago Scholars, which notably works to empower and uplift youth, regardless of their high school background, their neighborhood, their geographic location. When you hear all of this and it's associated with your name, with the experience of you, with your eventual legacy, did 13-year-old Derek think that this was possible? Was this what you had in mind?
1: Wow. When you package it like that, definitely no. <laughs> it's all oh, man that it is so humbling to hear that, you know. I don't granted I do my resume because sometimes you have to do things, you know. I make sure I keep up with the media attention that I get, but I don't go back and read those things often. I just continue to get up and do the work. So when I think about 13-year-old Derek, and I did not know he was going to package the questions that that way, which was beautiful, and thank you. That's not any of what I thought I was going to do. I loved playing with my hands. I thought I was going to be an architect and build buildings around the world. I played with Legos and connects as a kid. You know, I used to drive around with my dad, you know, down Lakeshore Drive, or we used to do stuff with senior citizens. And I'm like, I wonder how they constructed that building. He would allow me to build up all these type of skyscrapers, 3D puzzles, you know, just playing with rocks and stuff. So for, you know, all through elementary school, I thought I would really go be an architect and go down that path and then end up getting to high school. And that was a whole journey before Chicago made it hard to choose the high school you want to go to. In high school, the goal was to become a radio TV person. I wanted to be a news anchor. Uh, my high school had its own TV studio, and we produced segments and stuff. And I was like, "I want to do this." And you know, and my father allowed me to jump into all of that. And you know, I studied that for four years in high school, and then all my teachers were like, "We want all y'all to go and be news anchors and work in the industry because not a lot of black people doing it." So. My entire, you know, radio TV class, out of 40 of us that started in our cohort, 35 of us graduated, and all of us went to try to pursue these, you know, careers in TV and film and whatnot, and so did I. (laughs) And I went to college with the goal of becoming the next Spike Lee. That was the ultimate goal. I wanted to create movies that told our stories from my perspective, and that was the goal all through college. And then when I graduated college, I was like, okay, I need to figure out what I wanted to do. And I looked at my resume at that time and only had two internship experiences in TV. I worked at two TV stations while I was in college. But I had all these work experiences, a volunteer experience in community. And I was like, okay, so it's something about this, but I am a first generation low income student from Chicago. So I need money once I once I graduate. Yeah. And I know we're going to talk about some of that as well. So I'm like, me going into public sector was not an option, um, and I end up taking my journey down the path and realized that I can do a lot of different things. And I tried that path of radio and TV, but my resume say these other things, and I end up choosing the public sector. And I started as a teacher, and I hated it. What did you <laughs> I teach second grade and sixth grade math and English on at Fort Dearborn Elementary on the south side of Chicago. The same elementary school my sister was there for a short period of time before we transitioned her out. And it was humbling to do that work, but I hated conforming to the U.S. education system of how we educate our kids. And i was like, there has to be a better way of supporting our communities without following these strict rules of what it means to educate our kids. And it's hard to educate them when they, some of them don't have food at home or they deal with other issues. So before we get to the educating part, we have to deal with the social, emotional issues, you know, especially in public education. So that opened my eyes to so much. However, I ended up moving to D.C. and taking an internship with the Obama administration because I wanted to really learn from that perspective what it means to do that work and then that internship turned into a job. And that's what put me on the trajectory of everything you mentioned. (laughs) And that lead up to that question.
0: So then being from the South side of Chicago, let's demystify that a little bit. What is it actually like to live and to grow up on the South side of Chicago? I still stay Chicago. I travel all around for work. And when people find out you're from Chicago, they go, oh, they're like, oh, is it really as bad as they say? And
1: even oh, going... stop watching Channel Nine on cable news.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. You got to turn off Channel Seven and Channel Nine, and then even going to how I see it weaponized. Uh, we're in a primary season uh, in the presidential elections, and candidates love to name drop Chicago as one of the most dangerous places to be in the world. So, what is it like to actually grow up on the South Side from from the pers- your perspective?
1: Oh, that's such a beautiful question. For my upbringing, I love to speak in I statements. It was a beautiful time in my life. I was just in a neighborhood community that raised me last night, picking up food from my favorite restaurant still in that community that I only go in that community to get. Uh, So this is ironic that this is the question, but it was communal. If you did something on the block that was not good, they wouldn't told your parents. You can go to the corner store, and it felt like family. You know, you can go to the local church and feel welcome. You can walk down the street. Has Chicago always had some symbolists of violence? Yes, but that's any major city. That's even even rural countries have issues. Um, however. Chicago, the south side of Chicago is the beautiful city. I always used to complain about the taxes of Chicago. However, yeah. I now appreciate playing my taxes and the amount of beautification, even in the areas that need deepened support. It's still beauty there. I love that we still cater to those communities. Um, there's rich history. A lot of people sometimes don't know the south side of Chicago used to be predominantly white, <laughs> you know, and then gentrification years ago changed that. Moving, white folks wanted to move to the suburbs because that was a great opportunity. I mean, you have to understand the history of this country because there were times when communities of Black people lived on the North side. So people just have to understand like all of that is a facade and all of that is based off racial segregation and our zip code system and zoning to keep those out. So when people understand the really makeup of Chicago and then you kind of better understand why the things that they are, but there's beauty in every corner of this city and the South side is truly the heart of so much rich history that transforms everything not only in Chicago but around the country.
0: So then thank you for that. When it comes to Chicago and your love for it, what made you want to stay in your native community? I'm someone that was not born and raised here. I'm someone who left my native community and I and I've blossomed elsewhere. What made you then leave come back multiple times but come back now and plant roots and really try to develop a material impact in the lives of the people who live here?
1: In that whole journey, I left Chicago twice. You know, I went away from school, and that was the journey I wanted to do that when I graduated. I honestly wanted to move to LA. The goal was to go to LA and start the whole movie journey. I came back to Chicago. The goal was to be here for 1 year, save some money, and then move to LA. Me and my best friend, I came back to Chicago. He went to Virginia, and we said the goal is to save one money and we're both going to move to LA. I ended up moving to D.C. and he ended up moving to L.A. <laughs> that year <laughs> later. And that's when I started that journey with the Obama administration. And then I did that for almost two years. And it was honestly hearing President Obama. I worked on the advanced team. So, if you know what that means? Government logistics and where the president goes, they send you and you make sure the president in and out smoothly, whether that's he staying overnight or not. I was on that team and loved that work traveling around the country doing that. But anywhere, place we um, during that time, we heard Obama speak. He talked about be the change. Go back to your community. If you're angry, go and do it. Be the hope. It was all those things he just kept preaching and telling the cities that we spoke to. And even during the 2012 election, you know, all the hope he inspired. Like, we could be the difference. So I'll say, okay, you know, I can go back to Chicago. I put grad school on hold. I was already accepted. I so let me go ahead and get my master's. And honestly, the goal was to come back to Chicago. Chicago, serve my community about a year and a half and go back to DC. Well, finished my master's and headed to an internship. That internship turned into a job. I've been back in Chicago 10 years doing this work. And I don't know if I will leave again. I always say I will more move in me, but it has to be for the right opportunity. And I honestly have to be living internationally. I want to do this work on an international level and then bring it back to Chicago again. So I think for me, I've been able to have a worldly experience and I've seen how my experience to help my family and those around me. And at the end of the day, you know, I want to lead the community better than how I it, you know, I was birthed into it. I always say there are two different types of millennials. It's those that want to make money and just live their lives and nothing wrong with that. They don't want to be what their parents were. But then those that want to make money and be the change. And sometimes that's a little bit more work with those types of millennials. Now, Gen Z is a whole other thing. I love that. They want to flip tape and burn down the walls. And I encourage them every day to do those things. But then I could then use my ways to then go away and eradicate change while they're flipping tables and burning down walls. So I think all of us play our role, but my journey back to Chicago is very much intentional and forced, I always say.
0: So then you mentioned being a kid from the South side of Chicago to then go to Alabama State University, which is an HBCU, historically yes, black is institution. Uh, We've had a few HBCU alumnus on the show, but from your perspective, coming from Chicago to then Alabama, what did you take from that experience in the HBCU? How can you describe what you experienced? I
1: always say I would do high school and college over if I had to. I know that's not true for everyone, but that's definitely something I would do. College and at that time at, you know, 18, 19, going away to Montgomery, Alabama and just being away, The freedom that I had was like out this world. However, I was the only one from my family and my high school that went to the school that I want. So I had to make friends. I had to make community very quickly on that campus. And I appreciate having that type of personality to do so. But they walked me with open arms I felt like every professor and admin Was like a, a, a mom and dad Or an auntie and uncle Like they truly wanted us to be successful You know I always, you're, like, I always know my community's not going to always be all black Like that's not going to be my life all the time But it was very important for me To have that type of black college experience And like many people You know in the 90s, early 2000s You know it was the different world on TV They kind of encouraged us to do that We yeah. all wanted that type of experience And that's what I wanted as well. And it truly gave that humbling experience. And also, I say coming out of college, I became very militant, you know, as well. I was a part of NAACP. That's when Obama had first started running in 08. And we was trying to, you know, make Montgomery, Alabama blue. Craziest thing we tried to do in in the 2008. Granted, 10 years later, it ended up happening. You know, granted, I wasn't there, but then getting their first black mayor and it became Montgomery County, became um, Democratic, which
0: I was like, I remember early in the and day. the Montgomery to... ball, brawl.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. that I'll
1: be down there for homecoming in October. <laughs>
0: <laughs> bring your chair. Bring your chair.
1: Bring your chair. <laughs> But no, it, it it gave me the richness of what it means to be black and love black and don't allow no one to attack what that means, protect our culture, fight for our culture. It taught me all of those things. It also let it also made me stronger to know like the world is not always gonna protect you or give you the tools that you need. Sometimes you gotta fight for doors to be open. So it gave me all those different types of tools. It also gave me a rich community. You know, my paternity brothers and a lot of my social friends from that time, we are still good friends, and I have friends all over the world that's been able to, to stay deeply, really connected. So I always would say my HBCU experience, I would do it over and time and time again because it truly made me the person that I am and gave me the belief and understanding what it means to be Black and do it unapologetically and very boldly.
0: How did that impact then your coming out experience as a queer man, as a queer person, as a queer Black man?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. God, you're really good. For a long period of time, that part of my life was hidden. Because, again, early early in the years of me navigating a professional space, it was still very much built built on white supremacy and still is today. (laughs) However, it's not as bad as it was coming out of college, you know, in 2010 and still trying to navigate that space. Like, you didn't see men show emotions in workspaces. You know, you didn't see a lot of, you know, queer people in the workspace or it only worked in certain type of industries. And, you know, growing up being, you know, growing up being a young black boy, the only images you saw on TV of black queer men was very flamboyant or very boisterous or very loud. And even though there's nothing wrong with those type of individuals, I didn't see me in that, you know, although I've had these feelings and, you know, who I was also, you know, dealt with some traumatic issues that put me in some of those situations as well. Um, but also understanding that a lot of that part of me was hidden because I felt I could not show it in my professional setting mm-hmm. um, early in my career. When I moved back to Chicago in 2013, I worked for Youth Guidance um, and that organization. Um um, I work for the Becoming a Man program, and it specifically works with black and brown boys and young men of color with mental health therapy, clinical counseling. And that space did not talk about queerness a lot at you know, at that time. I just did not know if I would have spoke up on if I would have kept my job. And not that I did not know if it would happen. I was just fearful if I did, I might lose my job because I did not see that in that space. Um, on top of that, I'm a, I'm a church Get. You know, I've been raised in church. I I still am. I call myself a gay Christian. None of that is true. You know, in the Bible, you cannot do these things. So, having these thoughts, you know, as a young boy, like oh, I want to explore this, but then also being raised in the church and that struggle coming out was not something that was even an idea or a possibility. Um, And honestly, that work for me started in 2017. I did this program called the Landmark Forum. It's an international program, but they have a a chapter here in Chicago. And pretty much that organization um, I asked you to pick something you want to work on. At that time, I wanted to work on being more authentic with my family and, and, and mending family broken relationships. I'm like, I need to fix some things with my parents. You know, as you get older, you realize your parents just didn't know what they was doing. So how do you find meet them in the middle to challenge them to be better and to understand, like, as a kid, you made me mad, <laughs> but let's talk about this. Um, so in 2017, you know, I told my mom, uh, you know, I was gay and I don't necessarily use the coming out phrase. I understand what that means. I use more so the letting in. Like I always knew that it would be my choice to let you into who I was. I, it was very important for me to protect the journey that I was on because I didn't know who I was going to be. I, you know, for a parent, I like women and I like men, but I, I realized later a lot of my traditional ways of being taught that wasn't the core of who I was. And then also just trying to figure out the type of queer man I want to be. So, you know, so I let my mom in 2017 though I was, yeah, I let my dad in 2018. I let my grandparents in 2019. So my coming out, let in journey was later in life. Although I was, if you would have asked me, I would have told you, but I was, I was not. Well, so forthcoming to telling that just because. The spaces I worked in and the spaces I moved in, you did not see them, unless you went into entertainment or fashion or you was just a teacher. I knew the trajectory I wanted for my career to move to executive leadership in this space, and oftentimes you just did not see certain things at that time. Now, you see a lot of different stuff, but still certain sectors like finance, you know, and business is still very much a cisgender, able-bodied, heterosexual white man world, and you still have to figure out how to challenge that. I get my nails done as a as a stated proposition around challenging toxic masculinity in those spaces every day and I did it just yesterday at a corporate partner event in the west loop like still have my blazer on but still shaking my hands with my freshly manicured hands because I want to challenge that status quo so I think for me it's truly been a journey of letting people in to who I was and then in 2019, I put on social media after Alicia Keys put on, and I, you know, wrap up after this. Alicia Keys put on social media that um her son wanted to get fingernail polished. And when and the amount of critics and bots that tried to attack her or son tore me up in my soul. And I went on social media and I said I would never do this, and I did it. I declared it to the world that as a black Gay Christian man that's been doing work for Black and Brown boys for the past ten years. I too am gay, and I put pictures of my hands being done, and I did, and it broke in it, and I did not care because at that point, and I said, I need people start to understand there's a spectrum of masculinity, and then that's when I started doing community forums around redefining masculinity
0: as a gay Christian man. That's not a phrase, a pairing that's very common. It does exist. There are gay mm-hmm. pastors. They are first gentlemen's and things of that nature, depending on the denomination, the Reformation, and the way that it is expressed. How did you reconcile your faith with who you are, despite the teachings, despite, you know... For I always tell people for the longest time, women were not seen as, you know, when women in the, are in the church, you do not preach. You don't even stand from the same place as a man would stand. Because it, yeah, there's a clear yeah. delineation. Uh, my own grandmother was a pioneer, a pastor in her own right in the 1980s, when if you wow. were she was seated at a special service, uh, preachers would often want to move away from where she was because what she was doing was seen as unbiblical. So sitting where the Christian church still hasn't cleared this up. I believe That's it's not. So That's not. Yeah. They, they haven't really addressed it where they have always sat in that homosexuality is a sin. It is something that you choose. And if you work, it can be diminished or suppressed. How did you find the courage to reconcile that with your faith and still exist within that community to identify with that community?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. The reconciliation process is really was an unlearning and relearning process. I honestly had to make the decision to step away from the structures of traditional church and redefine what Christianity and practice meant for me. I have uh, personally had too many examples where my God, who I choose as a Christian, has shown up in my life. And it's hard to explain the things I've seen or the things I experienced, but I have. And i no one can tell me different because that's my experience. So to that fact... There's some truth there for me. There's also a, I also challenge it sometimes. So I'm like, you put it's so much belief and deep thought into this, but you truly have no facts. Granted, I'm not a theologian, I have friends that are theologians, and I love sitting down talking with them to really understand their deep perspective because they want to study and understand all the richness of it. But I truly believe there's a connection to all religious institutions as some small threat, you know, I, I truly do believe that. But for me, there's safety and security and understanding that I want a higher power to connect to just because the world around us is crazy. And a lot of it for me, like it's my reconciliation process unlearning and relearning. And challenging those spaces as well. You know, you know, my former pastor and, you know, religious leaders, we have had those conversations around what it means to really respect this space and what it means the teachings that you do. Because the Bible at the end of the day talks about love your neighbor as God so loved the world. And so if that's, you know, for me, if that Bible scripture enough says that anything that comes as form of judgment or you trying to figure out who I was, is not of God. So if God tells you at the end of the day to love me unconditionally and the love that you have for me would transform my heart, that's the only responsibility that you have for me as your fellow human individual on this earth. And if your love and your appreciation and how you choose to show up in my life, then you know, forces me or not enforces me, allows me to want to make a shift, then that allow that to happen organically, not for you forcing it down my throat, because I truly believe we can live in a world where we have respectful difference and still live harmoniously. However, we just choose not to respect one another. Um And we can talk more more about that when we were defining around equity. But for me. Being a black, you know, gay Christian is about redefining, understanding what that means for me. And even still, I don't necessarily want to be around just an affirming church. I don't want to be around the toxic churches as well. I mm-hmm. just want to be around a church that respects me as, as an individual. You can preach as you want to preach, you can say, as long as you do it all evenly. Because at the end of the day, People are all doing their different things and you just laying on one thing. I don't want to be a part of that because there's a lot of stuff I don't believe in that, but the institution of worship and praise that I do believe in because I've seen power and healing in that for my own life, my own family.
0: So to clarify, so yes, there's the place for healing. There's the place for worship. There's the the place for praise. But as I was taught growing up, part of the Christian walk when you say yes to Jesus when you allow God to come into your life and he becomes your higher power your source and that's the presence that you look to then doesn't that require some changes of conduct and of living so isn't the church also a tool for correction but I think to your point is it also a place for correction on many things and I think there's discussion still on some what some of those things are there was a day in yeah. time where you could not get divorced There was a day and time you did a tattoo. So what would you say there?
1: Yeah, I think that is a true argument. And I think can church and religion as a doctrine and as a book, as any other book for literature, be a way to teach and correct? Yes. I think, like any other thing, when it comes to therapy or going to college or reading how to work your new iPhone, it's still an application to your own understanding how you want to use that at the end of the day. And I think a lot of this has come from my un- relearning, understanding, of applying what it means for me. Yes, the Bible may say, you know, marriage or sexual you public know, between a man and a woman, but at the end of the day, who's really wrote that? <laughs> you know, so I, you know, there's also many contradictions in the Bible. You know, it says one thing in one chapter the next, it completely says a different thing and both believe the same book. So because of all those contradictions and I cannot, you know, same when it comes to think about the GOP and the Republican Party, they may say some good <laughs> things, but that doesn't make me. Four Republicans, don't agree with half the other stuff they say. You know, I'm a fan of Chris Christie, but that doesn't mean I want him to be my, my president. <laughs> you know, I just like, how hey, you talk about money. <laughs> so, you know, I think I think it's, it's the same thing when it comes to, you know, religion and Christianity. At the end of the day, it's just a system like any other system that can be used to guide our life. And you take from it what you want from it. Now, you want to be individual to take this book and do all the things by it. That is the structure you need for your life because you may not have another space to go to the get it, then I understand that. But that does not mean to pass, are your judgment and understanding from that space on someone else? Again, that's not what the Bible talks about. So I guess for me, I'm looking at it from an education perspective, and then I find my own connection to it because that's how I look at it right now. And I know sometimes that sounds confusing, but I think that's around the unlearning and relearning to then apply it for yourself.
0: Something that you, you've you said once, it's a quote from you, that I think it resonates with the way that uh, we're conversing right now, is you say that when the collective chooses themselves, we demonstrate what inclusion and respectful, respectful difference, difference looks, like. looks like. That's a mm-hmm. quote from you. And I very much see that coming out in your person now. I wonder, because of the work that you do in encouraging people to choose themselves, to do the work on themselves, for me in my life, I've come to define success very differently. Um, People have heard me hint at my story, but for a long time, my journey was to be this generation's Pastor Carter. And that changed for me. It changed because of exposure to new things, to new people, to new lifestyles, to who I was as an individual for a large portion of my life. I only listened to gospel music. People don't know that about me, but
1: I didn't listen to I still do. That. That's still the primary music I listen to. I,
0: I primarily <laughs> listen to kind of a fusion of classical jazz. And then of course I, I love my gospel. Well, that
1: too. That second. That's, yeah. But
0: that used to be like the only thing that I would listen to. Wow. And I imagine that an obstacle that you've been overcoming in your own life is, is coming to know yourself and defining what success looks like for you, but then also to the individuals that you mentor, to those that you lead. So when it comes to those with underprivileged backgrounds who don't have as much exposure, that boldness to dream, that willingness to struggle, I imagine is an obstacle for them. Are those common themes that you found? And then how have you aimed to navigate those individuals, but also the organizations that you're in to help combat uh, that false view of reality that holds individuals captive,
1: yeah, um, um, one of the things when i when I was prepping for this, I wrote down Lifelong learner. That's mm-hmm. what I wrote down. For me, when I think about defining success for myself at this current state in my life, it's truly about learning and relearning, learning and relearning because the world is so different, you know how I used to think just yesterday is different today just because I have a different level of understanding. But that's because I, you know, I speak in I statements and I tell my partner this all the time as he's on his uh, therapy journey. Therapy is a choice. It's also a privilege um, because it's, not everyone can afford it. Anytime you're in a space where you can talk out your feelings, it is truly a privilege. So, whether that is this, whether that's a casual conversation with a friend, whether that's you going to library and pick up a free book because we all have access. I even saw a video around a black man struggling to read for the first time at 40 years old, but he's still trying to be a lifelong learner. So I think a lot of it starts with that around understanding, like how do you want to be a better person, and truly going down that journey to understand it. And like I was telling my father the other day, we still going to struggle with fear as we overcome other new new things. So then, if you did it before, you can definitely do it again. And I just happened to be tight trip that popped in my head as saying that. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, but but I think that's truly for me how I define success is you know being a lifelong learner and I, honestly you know it was embedded in me started in college you know I'm not going to say I came from that and my upbringing we didn't talk about feelings you know and what it, my my father said your job is school you know get good grades we don't have no problems so that's what I did <laughs> and I ended up going to college and you know um, so I think a lot of it's there the other piece I would say is just it's okay to do it different. You know, I think for so long, we have, even myself, I've been told that my path towards success was this one way I'm supposed to do things. And after, you know, 36 years of living and honest, you know, these past two years of really, you know, post the pandemic and trying to understand what this new world is, everything is different. So if you're trying to define success, that's like anything before, you know, March of 2020, You need to throw it all out the door because the world is so different. Technology is different. The way funding is different. Going out the jobs is different. You know, opportunities are different. So I think for me, a lot of it is understanding the current world right now and defining what do you want success to be at this current moment in your life and taking a chance and leaping and doing it. I think Steve Harvey has a book that says Jump. Uh, just jump out and take the leap and understand like you are the one that can define success for you. I tell people all the time and I wrap up here um, because I used to struggle with control issues for a long time. The only thing in life you can't control is you and how you respond to life. That is it. And that also comes with understanding success. If you want success, only you can do it. Now, that doesn't mean you're doing all the parts, but you have to go up and go ask that person for help or find that resource and then do the next thing.
0: I find it interesting, you know, being open to The changes of life, being open to the changes of our world, to the things that haven't been tried, the things that haven't been discovered, the things that have maybe worked in the past, but can be retooled and done in a different way. One of the words that we have heard a lot that's become a part of the mainstream conversation right now, and it wasn't for a long time, is this term equity. Mm -hmm. I was watching Bill Maher last year, and Bernie Sanders was on Bill Maher, and he was asked to define equity. And he could not define equity. And I was troubled by that because so much of his platform, ideally, was aimed at providing equity for many Americans. So to say that, how would you define equity?
1: I love this question when I saw it, because, and I always say, I, when I spoke on this. I was the Black History, my keynote speaker for Loyola University earlier this year. And as I apologize in advance because I may say some things you may not like. So I'm going to say it again. Apologize in advance to the listeners. because <laughs> I may say some things you don't like. Equity. Do I believe it's needed? Yes. Do I fight for it daily? Yes. However, do I think we truly are going to achieve it? No. And why do I say that? And I'm looking at some of my notes to make sure I'm saying it the way I want to say it. I think we have to truly understand what it means to achieve equity in America, but also understand how hard it truly is based on how our democracy is designed. Mm. Every four years, there will be a new president, a new governor, a new mayor. In between those four years, there's new local congress and federal congress, which means policies, laws, practices can change every two to four years in this country based on who's in office. With that being said, like we experience them right now with the Supreme Court around affirmative action, that has happened. With the Supreme Court tearing down Roe versus Wade, that is happening. Local governments like in Florida and Georgia ch- making it hard to educate our kids because they say they shouldn't be learning these different things. Or states that's you know going down and following the, the position around, you know, removing abortion, all of those different things. It can easily be said like two years later, four years later, all those things can be back stated. So with that being said, that's why I say my statement in this is how can we create a society of respectful indifference? Because we're always not. We're never all going to truly agree on the same thing in this country. That would make us a monarchy. And I've traveled outside of the country and I know some of those places look beautiful. But if you drop a piece of tissue on the floor, they're going to cut your head off because that's what the <laughs> monarchy says. <laughs> so I'm not saying I want to live in that type of world. But what I'm saying in a democracy where every two to four years things can change, you're always going to be fighting for some type of injustice, whether that's black, brown, white, Indian or indifferent. So I lean on the side of how do we allow the collective to choose themselves and demonstrate what true inclusion is? And respect what different looks like, which means if you are racist or or if you're someone that's anti-religion, that is great. That just lets me know how to place you in terms of community. I'd rather you tell me you're a racist. I'd rather you tell me you are racist i rather you tell me you do not like me. So now I know how to position your community. My people I don't like is my non-racist or the people that don't want to speak up and say anything because those are the ones that create truly the issues or the ones who's governing and changing laws because they don't know which side they want to lean on or they just want to call out who they are. So, yes, like I said, do I believe in equity? Do I fight for it every day? Because, yes, we need to make sure our people are getting what they get. But but do I truly believe that we're going to get it like in this dream form that everybody wants? No, because our democracy isn't made for that. That's not how America is defined. Now, can we create that type of world? Yes. But it cannot be in the confines of this country.
0: Uh, A book that this reminds me of is um, Legacies of Losing in American Politics, and I read it as part of my my senior thesis class. And I find it quite remarkable because that book points out how every losing faction in this country never went away, but they continued to exist, but to change their methods, they Mm -hmm. evolved. And so part of the method or madness to the balance of our country is to find balance within those factions and find out how to place them within society and how to identify them rather than feeling like there's something new every time they pop up. I was recently watching Star Wars released a new series. Are you a Star Wars fan?
1: I'm a fan but I don't I'm not I don't okay. have watched all the movies and all the shows. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. Stay with me on this. So okay. in Return of the Jedi, The Empire Falls. Then a new republic rises, the Rebel Alliance takes over, and the new republic takes its place. There is a clear power vacuum there, but they are coming in to fill it. Years go on, and in order for them to have a functioning government, they still have sympathizers or people who hold to the beliefs of the empire within their ranks— which makes them a bit fragile, which makes some of their efforts to be undermined, which still causes some in the galaxy to believe that they still need to fight for justice, that there is still a cause for them to fight for that fairness because it wasn't all one just because we're in power today. And Mm -hmm. I think your point speaks to because our democracy is set up for this back and forth, for this push and pull that can be impacted and affected by a myriad of factors, it is for us to be conscious of fairness, but to not believe that we can install a system of artificial fairness and that it will hold unless we're going to, you know, eliminate a half majority of the population. Do you follow that?
1: Yes, I follow that. And that that is truly my belief, because one, as much as I would love to eradicate all the issues happen with the Black African-American community, until we all get on the same page, we're still going to have these fights, because we've been pulled and divided different ways. I love the rise of the Latin the Latinx community in Chicago because you see the connect- togetherness that they're doing, the connection and the work they're trying to do together. I'm not saying the black community is not together in Chicago, but we're still in pockets, you know, not even just Chicago, in the world where, where we all agree. But we're not all together on the same page. And a lot of that is systemic. A lot of that historic is all been designed that way because they knew the power we once had. We was together. So I'm not saying that is all our fault, but we have to acknowledge those things, people. But we also understand we live in a country where there's still only 10 percent that's truly thriving. Everyone else is trying to make it. You know, even while they're living out their dreams and buying homes and having kids and working some of their dream jobs, still they day to day, they still need more. The world is more expensive. So we have to understand. So I agree with that 100%. That's why I said we have to figure out how to understand respect. Like anyone can give respect. We all just don't choose to do it. Like I don't agree with everyone and everything in the world. I don't, but I still be community with you. I still treat you like a human. I can still now explain to you why I position you the way I position you. And that should be understood because vice versa, I can do the same thing. But that is the work I have done to become a better and enlightened individual, but also because I've done that, now I have a duty to help those around me to understand that as well.
0: Do you believe, as a scholar, as someone who works to promote individuals from underprivileged backgrounds to then go on to higher education? It was said by our president, Joe Biden, when he was unveiling his second student loan repayment plan, not forgiveness plan. Uh, but that higher education is promised to be the ticket to the middle class. That is definitely how it was proposed to me. For me, it worked out very well. Do you believe that higher education is the sole ticket to the middle class?
1: It's not the sole ticket, no. I would not say that. It's one of the easiest paths, but it's not the sole ticket. Entrepreneurship is still very much a path. You know, we support students and I support students that want to go down that path. You know, the tech industry has shifted things so much. You can go on LinkedIn and Google and YouTube and learn how to code and do all the different types of things and go apply for a job at Google and LinkedIn and many other places. And you will be making more money than people with a degree coming out teaching. So 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 there are many ways to achieve post-secondary success or the life success that you want. However, for most Americans, who may not have some of those ambitions or don't even know what they want to do. College is not just a path towards education. It's a path towards discovery and enlightenment and exposure and practicing life skills in a confined setting. Those are things you can't often get, you know, working your first time job because you have to work and move fast. You don't get, you know, Opportunities to practice on what it means to be, you know, an adult. Uh, but it's not the sole way towards the middle class. But research says those with a degree, you know, make million dollars more. I mean, I have seen it. I have own family members who have a degree versus those that do not, and there's a significant difference in how their lives are and uh, elsewhere. A lot of it's based off ambition too. You know, but also but, but ambitious also taught You don't know how to be ambitious or what to go after. <laughs> is it if it isn't exposed to you? Um, so that's why a lot of the work that I do in the organization I've been connected to over the years. Uh, our biggest work is exposing young people and communities to greater opportunity. If you like our hope, brand that was someone that shows you something different. You know, they expose you to something different that allows you to be this person. You're going to meet somebody else. That's going to expose you to something else exactly. that make you do something even different or further down that path of success. And the other piece of it, why is middle class the only level we should be striving for? If you, <laughs> because when I was a teacher in a high school counselor for a, a couple of years, I mean, uh, years back, I used to tell them, that, I'm Mr. D. You know, if I just get a C, I'd be OK. But what happens you know, when you get into an argument with your sister again and you don't want to study? tomorrow night and you got to take that test tomorrow and you just didn't feel like do it the only other option you have is a dof but if you strive for a how many options do you have oh you have four you have a b a c a d and f
0: exactly if,
1: if we just teaching americans or you know just to strive for middle class and they don't get that then what do they have left poor <laughs> let me check the check is isn't that many other so we said let's strive to be millionaires And I just make it to make $300,000 a year, I'm still living a better life compared to just middle class. So I think we also we set up arbitrary goals and make them sound shiny and bright, but it's still limiting for most people. Uh, Let's teach them the real practice of what it means to thrive in this country. That's fine. That's understanding your finances from, you know, age 10, (laughs) how to money manage. You know what it means to live properly in this world. You know, yes, all the t- we need numbers and science, all that stuff, but none of that you truly use once you're done. I understand the, exp- the hyper exposure because it creates many pathways for our democracy and our world to exist. However, we do a lot of limiting exposure or a limiting of goals that people only think that's all they can do. And no. That's not, you know, we love to sell in more poor communities or more rural areas, government assistance, and that's and that's the only thing you teaching them or exposing to them. They think that's the only way out. And then to the article I, we may or may not talk about, right while wow, men are leaving the workplace. It's like if I don't know about these different things, what makes you think I'm going to uh, strive to be there? You can say, "Oh, it's violence." These different types of things. A lot of it is started with education system because we don't invest in it in this country at all. It's all based off privilege and selection. You know, think about this. Is really trying to understand how to create these paths for people to better understand how to create the lives you want. Because you, I always say when I'm when I'm speaking like to young people or speaking in certain spaces, I said everyone is birthed with the purpose. Everyone is birthed to be great. Everyone has the destiny to shine. So shine on, baby. So the thing is, I truly believe everyone in this world, everyone in this country was not meant to struggle or everyone's meant to go through, you know, trial and tribulation. You meant to be tested. That's my personal belief. But it does not mean you meant to fail every day or struggle every day. Mm -hmm. However, you can do something better. But I think a lot of times you limit people and what they think they could do when we know they can do more.
0: Student debt has been an increasing part of the national conversation for quite some time, even more so since our current president, Joe Biden, he campaigned on the elimination of all debt for HBCU graduates and then at minimum 10K recipient. But that did not materialize. Uh, do you think that the walk back and then the eventual alternative to the save plan sends the right message to emerging scholars, to future students who are going to attain that millionaire status as you just gave us that goal?
1: I don't think they should consider that as a part of their plan. I think that's a wrong strategy. You think if you're looking at that as your strategy to figure out whether or not you should go to college or whether or not you know, you're know you thinking about oh, going to school is going to automatically position me to be in debt. I think that is the wrong thinking, you know, not saying that that's your thinking, or that's your question. Um, so I think that's wrong. When I think about anyone that may want to go to college. Yes. Understand those things, read those things, because those are a reality for those that already did it. But that doesn't have to be your reality for someone that that's what you want for yourself or you want for your children. What I'm going to say is you need to learn the college admissions game. You need to understand the college admissions process. Even if you just graduated college six months ago, it's going to be different because now the Supreme Court has changed higher education admissions. You need to understand what that means. So it'll be very different for a student that may not want to go to HBCU. And I'm going to power anyone that want to go. because only one hundred and one left now. One hundred and two because one been re- reinstated. We're down in Georgia. My sister said one, but she's there on a full ride with no debt. She's going to graduate because I told her how to do it. So the thing is, you have to understand if you want to go to an HBCU systemically, and unfortunately, because historical things, many of them don't have all the resources compared to some of our traditional PWIs. So they may be able to give you a scholarship, but maybe may onto the first 20 <laughs> that apply and qualify. And that's just because they don't have all the resources. But if you want to go to, X HBCU, and you know it costs $75,000, and your A only gives you $50,000. We can, you can project that early right now because there are tools out there to do that based on your family and, local, and your personal income. And then you can now project what that's going to be down the line to know what your gap's going to be. Let's put your scholarship strategy before you end up going to said HBCU hmm. six months ahead of you before you go so you can know what scholarships to go after. But there are scholarships that give you $40,000 over four years for a degree that will cover those gaps for you. A lot of times for our students that want to go to those type of institutions, apply get in but go after the money late and by the time you're looking for money come February and further it's too late so when I think about you know the loan debt repayment plan I pray we get something you know for us (laughs) because I'm one of those individuals that would love you know granted I now qualify as a public servant thank God after 10 years of service so I have that (laughs) to support me however (laughs) August made it 10 years full time so (laughs)
0: <laughs> lucky you god bless so I'm
1: you. <laughs> that part of the process. However, you know, for those that's in, that's not there, you know, I pray that we do get it because I do think for many of us, we was not told the right things and we could have made some different decisions on what schools we went to that would have not put us in these situations. Granted, it's not detrimental for everyone. Some people can live with it. Some people, it's harder than others. Some people just don't want it. Um, but I pray they do get some type of form of relief because I do think, especially for those HBCU students and those that went to a for-profit college, I do think they need some relief because they were, you know, unfortunately. But for some other institutions, maybe not so. Other maybe not so much. But I do hope we get something because I do think there was some some misappropriation of how those funds were given to students who did not know what they was getting into. They created this, you know, debt income ceiling. On top of that, we're so concerned about the debt we have from student loans. When America's in trillion dollars of debt, and we're not working towards that, so. I mean, I think our attention is not on the right things because that even all of that was paid is still not going to put a dent in our overall debt as a country.
0: Well, then speaking to that, I was watching the GOP primary debate and we're in a primary season and we're seeing a lot of individuals attack hot button issues, create hot button issues, fester hot button issues. And what I've noticed in the GOP. As I've said on this platform before, I'm not a partisan, I call out everybody, uh, but they've been running their playbook from seemingly 1953 when they were all Democrats and then 2004 when they were attacking the queers nonstop uh, and operating within the space. You see the rhetoric that they want to abolish the Department of Education, which without the Department of Education as it's currently organized, not saying that there isn't room for improvement, I wouldn't have received the Pell Grant that allowed me to go to university uh, and graduate with minimal debt when they say things like, we need to make sure that the right history is being taught in our schools uh, and that affirmative action has no place in our schools. And even diversity and equity initiatives, which I benefited from, I would not have gone to the university I've gone to And succeeded the way I did without a lot of the support that I received from a lot of HBCU graduates who went to work at PWIs and to create programs that can bridge the experience for first generation college students. In your view, does this set us back at all? Or what is your perspective on a lot of the movement we're seeing specifically in this area, from Supreme Court rulings to rhetoric?
1: I think it's definitely heavy, you know, to understand what's currently happening in our world you know whether or not you know the GOP is saying like affirmative action has no place in the schools or teaching the right history all of that is ignorance because I don't think any of them in an intimate conversation one to more blatantly tell me that they believe all of that just knowing the backdrop of this country like especially for anyone running for political office at this day and age like So at this point, you're performing to your party or you're performing to those you need to try to win votes for. That's how I look at it. However, it's creating problems in terms of how laws are being overturned and changed. The other piece of it is, and I wrote this on so my notes, there's an overcorrecting and a shifting of things based off small changes. When you think about affirmative action, that's currently happening, is around higher education. It truly changes one thing around race-based admissions. Right, that is it. It does not take away being able to go out and recruit diversity. However, based on the state you're in, they may change some of those things. And that's when I talk about the overcorrecting, because affirmative action says this one thing. Now you have states saying, "Well, let's change, let's tweak these other things." That kind of fall upon affirmative action, but it's not necessarily a law that's changing. Same thing with corporations. Some of them are starting to shift some things. I'm not going to call them out because some of them I work with, but some of them are shifting things and you have to have challenging conversations with them and that partnership means, like, Okay, what does this change mean? We may not be able to stay in this type of partnership, you know, so you have to have those type of accountability structures. Um, but my concern right now, yes, we have some big political things shifting and we have a current presidential race is kicking off and we having these conversations while that rhetoric is being happening we need to listen to it and it's already on the stage but the other part of the process of what are the young leaders we're rising up to be new political leaders in that space they can then change those things down the line as well you know that you know I often revert back to the letter for Birmingham jail jail for Martin Luther King Jr. I think 1966 but I could be wrong if that's not the year one of the things that he said in that in, in that letter, he gave us a script on how to follow to eradicate change. You have to have those that are on, that's on the front lines agitating, limping tables, making noise. But you also have those behind the scenes rising up in spaces to eradicate change. So, yes, you have to pay attention to what's currently happening in our world. You have to have those on the front line that's trying to fight to change those things and interrupt and disrupt those things becoming law. But we also have to make sure we're doing the work to make sure we rise enough to prepare the next generation to eradicate those things. Let's go back to what I said earlier in this country in this democracy, we very hard to try to get all on the same page. But we have to have to understand the political game in this country. And some things we have to do in secret, and some things we have to do out loud to ensure that what is trying to move forward and what's trying to change in our country does not happen. You know, I often, you know, with some of my friends, we be in our secret spaces, and we be devising a plan of what it means to eradicate a lot of this different stuff. I mean, you have to understand some stuff is done out loud, and some stuff is done in secret, or to do so. So when I think about current things happening in our political parties, we have to be vigilant. We have to figure out what is our plan for the next hundred years to make sure that we are still have a place to do so. Because what my biggest fear, you know, research says in the next two years, by 2025, we will live in the most diverse world ever that we are we have already achieved they said by 2020 we will have the most young generation of diverse individuals and that has already come to be our schools are the most diverse so we do not make sure we have a shifting of power and who those individuals are in the next couple of years we gonna be living in a country where the one percent is still majority white navigating us although 99 in this country is not even white
0: in this question before we close there's a quote, another quote from you that I love. Uh, and you say, you can't control life. The only thing in life you can control is how you respond to life. So get up and keep moving. Because you were birthed with a purpose. You are destined for greatness. And you have a light that shines. So shine on. As someone who has endured and overcome hardships, who's done the work themselves to then show up in the world as your full authentic self and to empower others to do that. How do you balance the effects or impacts of injustice with our agency, our willingness to do the work, to overcome?
1: I teared up as you you were saying that because it truly has been a journey to become the individual I am today. And sometimes it's not even easy to show up as the person I am today, because you have to still understand the spaces you walk into. You know, I was in the space last night at a corporate event. I'm a fundraiser and that's my job. And it was only three black men in the room, in in that entire room. And I'm in there with billionaires, some of the richest people in Chicago. And I have to understand my power that I have in that space, but to also understand which identity needs to be at the forefront in that space. Oftentimes I tell people or I try to you know, educate people on, I'm not saying don't be who you are in whatever space you go in. Go in guns are blazing in it. However, understand the space you're walking into. Not every space is ready for all the things that you carry. And it's up to you. Do you want to be a part of that space to eradicate change? Or do you want a space where you can just be yourself and not worried about all of that? Those are the questions you have to navigate. You know, when you think around your your agency, your power, the systemic injustices you may walk into. The other piece of it is understand your collective power. One, as a people, you know, as a human society, we have to understand what is our collective power. And that is a journey. There are certain ethnic groups, black, black people being one, need to understand our collective power and what we truly have. Um, But when I think about, you know, how I've coped with uprooting, you know, systemic injustice, the work starts with you. I always say in order to do any of this work, if you're not doing your own work to understand you better, it's hard to do all these other things. We're going to be triggered on a daily basis by all type of stuff. I can't even watch the news every day because I'm triggered by the news every day. but But I still have to tune in to know what's going on. You know, sometimes I don't want to go social media because I'm triggered by something on social media, but I still have to figure it out. So we have to understand what's that collective power and what it means to uproot our systems. But also understand what is your role in it. You may not want to be someone that's, you know, flipping tables. You may just want to be an agent of change. You just want to be able to talk to one person at a time. It is okay to know your role in the fight. You may just want to be someone that share an article every so often. We need people to get the message out there doing that. You may just be a consistent a resharing. You are, you are needed in this work. You may be someone that want to march up and down the street and fight every day. You may just want to take the long road to run for president one day. Everyone has a role and wants a root change in our society. We have to figure out what that means for you. I think I am tired of everyone saying that everyone has to get up and fight. No, they don't. Everyone needs to figure out your role in the collective mission to, be, to create a better world around us.
0: And then in closing, what are you most looking forward to?
1: One, I am looking for. As much as I love, for some, looking forward to the fall. You know, just you know, I. I it was, it was too
0: hot. It was too hot this week. <laughs> I was...
1: Well, it was the hottest day we had all summer, so I wasn't too mad at it. It's been a very wet summer here in Chicago. Uh, but I'm, the fall is my favorite season because of the fashions. So, you know, and so in, in a funny way, I'm excited for the fall just because all the fashions and the multi-layers. But the other piece, the fall brings new opportunities. We have to move into the seventh and eighth month very soon. You know, we we about the eight means new beginning. So, you know, the last part of this year is an opportunity to close out and achieve some things you thought you were going to achieve in the first six months. So I'm excited for the opportunities ahead to do more of this great work. I'm excited for the opportunities that continue to empower people to want to be a part of this change. And at the end of the day, I just want to be, you know, you know, one of the things that I I talked about in my Just Be campaign is just creating a world for everyone to just be their authentic selves wear your head up on authenticity you know, show up as who you want to be that is the future I want to be I want to be able to walk down the street and everyone's just free everyone's breathing the fullness of the richness of the world that they're in uh, that is the future I want to see that is the hope you know that I hope for
0: well, thank you so much, Derek, for coming on the show. I, I knew it was a good idea to ask you on. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I oh, I did a good job. <laughs> I have a good idea every now and then, and this is one of them. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of BC's Corner. If you love this conversation, feel free to like, to follow, to subscribe, and also to share. And if you really liked us, Feel free to go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you so much for being a part of this community, and we'll see you soon.